This is episode 57 of The Bridge Podcast. I'm your host, John Lamberton. I'm joined today by Daniel Appel. Dan is a guitarist, and he's been responsible for uh, debuting a ton of new music and uh, releasing a lot on his new Focus record label. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Hey, John. Thanks so much for having me. Really My pleasure. Happy to be chatting. Uh, so I always start these conversations out with a kind of, uh, I guess, like a personality test by just asking if you drink coffee, um, and if so, what are your coffee habits and uh, what are your coffee preferences? Oh, I, I do drink coffee. Uh, I'm not really much of a connoisseur, to be honest. Uh, so I just have like a pretty standard drip coffee machine. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm rocking like alternation between a Colombian blend and a French uh, roast blend and, and uh, definitely been known to top off things with an espresso later in the afternoon if I'm running around and trying to you know keep the, the caffeine energy level higher. Yes. Uh, yeah. Do you do you have any preferences in terms of like cream, sugar, black? Oh uh, yeah it's always non-dairy milks for me because I don't eat I don't drink uh, milk or eat dairy. So I usually go with oat milk these days. I was an almond milk guy for a while, and then I read about how that was like depleting water resources. Uh, soy milk does it gets too granular in the coffee? I think interesting. I, I'm more of a soy milk person. I'm ah, okay. somewhat uh, somewhat of an anti oat milk person, but only uh, for I guess like whatever the the taste uh, the palate version of aesthetics is. Uh, Fair enough. I have some qualm with it. But, yeah. Um, well, how much uh how much do you drink per day would you say coffee wise mm -hmm. uh it sort of depends on like what my life looks like that day uh like today i'm home and just practicing and taking care of stuff so it'll probably be like a two cup day day uh but like yesterday or two days ago i had a super long day with like a lot of different stuff i had to do so i think i probably did maybe four cups three 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 or four i won't usually go past that gotcha yeah. Um, if, if coffee was removed from your life by force for some reason, um, how would like to what degree would your performance capabilities suffer? <laughs> like as a player or as a person? Um, either one. I, you know, I'm not totally sure, but I actually sometimes speculate that I might be better off without it, but I don't seem to know how to like make that switch. I definitely find that I'll get into a cycle where I'm drinking coffee especially if i have a lot of gigs i'm drinking a lot of coffee and then after the gig i'm going out and having a couple beers and then i get home and i'm like not sleeping because of both of them not sleeping <laughs> that great and i wake up the next morning i have to sort of do the same thing and it gets into this bad cycle so it maybe that would be better off without any of it uh but yeah as is i think it definitely uh it it seems to help uh the sort of juggling a lot of hats, bouncing back and forth between a ton of different things type of mindset. And maybe isn't always that ideal for the like very focused, I'm really going to just do one thing type of, you know, my mind is going a little too fast sometimes with the caffeine. I, I'm a big fan of the caffeine. So, uh, you know, don't ever stop. Um, okay. you got it, man. So I first, uh, I first encountered your playing, um, from talking to John Link, who, um, you know, has a piece for Irving LaPelle and I, I believe that's your father. No, <laughs> uh, it's actually a funny joke behind that. Okay. So I had a duo with, uh, percussionist, Jeff Irving, really great New York based percussionist. 
And John was one of the first people who wrote for us. And I love that piece. John's amazing. In fact, I think I watched your guys' uh, podcast. Okay. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I've known John for years and we've worked on a lot of pieces together. And, and as you know, he's a really great Elliot Carter scholar too, like super uh, influential in terms of the scholarship uh, around Carter. Um, and so he, I think, I don't remember exactly how it came about, but basically he wanted to sort of title the piece with a little of a sort of humorous uh, reference to the Feldman pieces, like for Philip Gustin or, mm-hmm. um, and we realized that if we put our two last names together, it sounds like somebody who might be a relative of mine. <laughs> and I, my, my grandfather's name was Irving Novick. Uh, but actually on my father's side, the lapel side, there was no Irving. So we just had this idea that like for Irving lapel, and if we ever did like a single with a cover, we could be like standing on the side of a, an older gentleman whose back was turned in a chair, this sort of shadowy figure, Irving lapel, you know? Uh, like some sort of AI face combination yeah, right. of the two of you. Right. Right, right. But he doesn't exist, actually. Irving, you heard it here first. I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> Santa Claus and Irving Lapel aren't real. So, um, well, I guess uh, the other people that I've sort of encountered you through are Michael Kadurka and John Schneider, and then it yeah. seems like you know I see um, on Twitter Christian Carey uh, oh, yeah. mentioning that he's writing a piece for you, and so it's like you you uh you're you're around apparently um yeah and so i'm can't get rid of me i think <laughs> I, I guess i'm curious um you know you seem very much like invested in new music and contemporary type of compositions and um you know if if you say classical guitarist somebody's probably going to think something vaguely sort of segovia ish they might think of asturias and like in my mind kind of like your version of asturias is going to be something like shard or changes and I'm, I'm wondering if that's a reasonable sort of analogy or if you, there's a better way that you define what you do than classical guitar. Yeah, that's a great question. This is actually gets us into an interesting rabbit hole, too, because the language around this stuff has really shifted, I think, in the last few years as the interrogation around traditions has shifted. Mm-hmm. So the word like classical. So for me, like uh, I was using classical guitar interchangeably with nylon string guitar for years. And, and, and I, I, you know, grow, I, I did grow up learning the standard classical guitar repertoire and I have degrees in classical guitar performance. Uh, and you know, what that means, you're absolutely right. It's like, you know, playing standard red, playing Albanese, playing Taraga, playing, you know, Giuliani, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Bach Suites or whatever. Um, and that I'm, pretty sure it's still called like classical guitar. These departments are still called classical guitar, but I think within a sort of community, you know, the new music community maybe was sort of leading the way in terms of interrogating some of the language around what we use. And classical guitar actually became like a weird uh, lightning rod. I found that uh, some groups I was playing in were insisting on calling it acoustic guitar. I was like, well, that's not quite right, because that sort of suggests like it's a steel string guitar. Right. Maybe we should say nylon string guitar. Um, but from my point of view, like that part of my playing, I mean, I play a lot of electric too, um, but that part of my playing is very much about being connected to the lineage of the classical guitar repertoire. I'm not seeing it as like a distinct sort of thing without roots. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so 
my way of coming to repertoire like Carter, Davidovsky, Babbitt, uh, or any of the composers that I'm working with, John or or other folks, is definitely uh, uh, growing out of having a sort of foundation in classical guitar music, but then feeling like I wanted to invest myself in helping to uh, expand the repertoire to reflect aesthetics that were uh, in play in contemporary music. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess I also sort of, uh, I came to new music or, you know, contemporary classical music through basically through t- two or three different portals in a way. One was I love playing chamber music uh, and I felt that our strongest tra- chamber music was definitely 1950 on, mm-hmm. you know, starting well or maybe even a little before the schoenberg serenade and and the weber pieces uh but then also really ramping up with like marteau uh and then like uh, any number of pieces in the second half of the 20th century that took advantage of the guitarist timbral uh capacity so that would be one thing another thing is i think i've always sort of been attracted to uh aesthetic philosophy in general mm-hmm. and it seems like uh in the 20th century, aesthetic musical philosophy really sort of exploded in, in a way that if you look, you know, previously in Western music, at least, things were a bit more uniform in a given period uh, as they evolved. But it wasn't as much a kind of thing like that you might find in the 70s or the 80s where you had like all these different things going on at once. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Uh, well, maybe that's just two things. But the, the point is that that these things really attracted me to uh, expanding beyond the sort of standard rep, mm-hmm. which I was, you know, pretty like invested in as a high school student and as an undergrad. And then I think it was around my master's degree that I started to feel like maybe the sort of more traditional guitar world and competitions and everybody playing like. Rodrigo's invocation and dance wasn't mm-hmm. really like where I wanted my life to go as much as I, I continue to love that repertoire and, and that music, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so that actually motivated me to come to New York and study with David Starobin at Manhattan school of music, uh, because I saw him as like a model of someone who had done something really different and with a lot of conviction, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, very inspiring sort of path. Um, and so that's so I ended up moving here and then I sort of got into and connected to the new music scene here. Uh, and that's, I guess, the, that's sort of how I landed there. So in, in terms of the actual phraseology of you know, classical guitar, I guess I would probably be in the camp of saying that I want to still use that phrase because I do want to see these pieces within the context of a lineage, even if it's a problematic lineage like from a social point of view Mm -hmm. uh i i think they grow out of you know especially if you're talking about like stuff like carter or you know the modernist rep it still grows out of like a a tradition of performance practice that is grounded in right in the same stuff you know yeah and to say something like i'm a contemporary guitarist is kind of like not useful because i mean obviously if you're alive and performing you're a contemporary guitarist so it doesn't have any <laughs> right and it also yeah i mean it could suggest that you're like a sort of session player 
I mean, it could, like contemporary guitarist to most of the world would mean like, oh, okay, cool. You play like, you know, backing <laughs> tracks for, for R&B artists or something, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, it's not really, we don't have a great language to, to talk about contemporary concert music, you know, contemporary composed music, but that's also weird because like there's a ton of music that's composed that we don't really consider new music. Right. Right. Uh, so in some ways, I think the the breaking down and the interrogation of those boundaries is a great and very important thing. But when it sometimes it feels like it can jump the shark. If you're talking about like the instrument that I'm playing, that's always been called classical guitar, and then all of a sudden it can't be called classical guitar. Eh, I don't know. Well, it's probably cases to be made on both sides, you know. Gotcha. Uh, so I mean, uh, with new music like. You know, Carter's shard or changes, those are both like very complex pieces that like rhythmically, I remember picking them up, picking them up way long ago when I was like not ready for them and just being like, this is too much. Um, And so it seems like there's this aesthetic tendency to go towards complexity and sort of like virtuosity, you know, has always been around, but it seems like it's becoming increasingly cerebral. Like it's increasingly about how sort of like Fernie Ho or Fernie Ho is very like, just like impossible to parse, it seems like. And I'm not sure how much of that's like actually difficult to coordinate versus just kind of cryptically uh, or you know, uh, complicatedly written down. But um, I imagine that at some point, this type of thing has to top out because humans have normal sort of human thresholds for what they are capable of. So, um, I mean, I was interested to see that a lot of the pieces that you play aren't actually like, they're, some of them will be very pretty or like, you know, kind of, not what you would expect of like the you know just super dissonant complicated music so um what what are you looking for in new music uh i mean because i don't think that you're just looking for complexity or something that's complicated right right no i'm not obviously um yeah i mean this is it's funny i just had a conversation with a good friend of mine Corey Smythe, an amazing pianist who uh we were on a gig together playing some of his music and it's i play like a quarter tone tuned higher than the piano and it's pretty complicated stuff. And we were sort of just talking about in a way like this question, uh, are things going to top out? Or I, I think the way he put it is, are we past like the midpoint of what's possible in music? And we're going to find that eventually we just like run out of new things to do or run out of things that are perceivable. Uh, and I ended up arguing that I thought there was always going to be something new that you could discover, like, I think microtonality, we're sort of just starting to scratch the surface with using that in a contemporary context, even though obviously everything's microtonal and like early tunings show us that we, that this is something that we put on pause in a way for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, But then he sort of said, well, yeah, but what's the human capacity for perceiving the gradations of microtonal pitches? And I guess I answered with, this is becoming like a Socratic (laughs) dialogue but um i answered with the idea that i think that people can be trained to hear more subtle subtleties in, mm-hmm. in upper tones and that as you're trained to hear the more the more subtleties you'll be more sensitive to the way they affect the harmony and more expressive melodic shapes um and then also obviously technology is always going to continue to develop uh but it was like it, it it was an interesting question i think what you know you're asking about as complexity ramps up, I agree. Something like the Fernie Owl, like I haven't studied those pieces. I've, I've 
studied the scores, but I haven't studied playing them yet. And I want to play them. And actually, just last night, we saw a really great presentation at, uh, on Arthur Campella's music. Do you know Campella, mm-hmm. the brilliant composer? Oh, you, you got to check it out. Fantastic composer who is engaged with a lot of similar type of complexity stuff, but maybe does it in a way that is more embodied. Uh, I think it's like, imagine Fernie Howe and maybe like mixed a little bit with Jason Eckhart, like, yeah. uh, like that kind of sort of more physical thing. Uh, I'll send you some links. It, awesome. It's really cool stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's always, a. I, I guess my, when I read your uh, email last night, I was thinking about this. My instinct about this stuff is that I don't think of complexity for for sure, and in some ways virtuosity either, as values that should be standing on their own. Right. I think they work most successfully when they're acting in concert with some other aesthetic goal. Uh, and so, I mean, when I listen to Fernie Howe's music, it never sounds as complicated as it looks on the page. Right. Uh, and, and that doesn't necessarily cause me to conclude that he should have notated it differently because I understand that there's a strategic psychological game he's playing with the Mm -hmm. way he's getting things. And he wants it to sort of feel like he's pushing a performer to a place that they're not sure they can do. Right. Um, and that's part of the energy of the performance. Uh, but, and actually I saw some of your conversation with Jason, mm-hmm. uh, he sort of talked about this a little bit, like his music is always very clear. It's hard, mm-hmm. <laughs> but like everything is, uh, very discreet, I think rhythmically. And so he's pushing a performer to a similar place, but it isn't, uh, shrouded in mystery in the same way i guess right yeah uh and then and then you get something like carter or uh babbitt or davidovsky i mean they're all actually very different but everything by now now that there's like been a decades-long performance practice on that music and people have sort of figured out how to approach it uh is actually pretty straightforward in a way but playing it and getting it to sort of really speak and communicate the musical ideas behind it in the moment, I think it's just as hard, if not harder than music that is a little bit less uh, penetrable, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. It's like Davidovsky for me, and it, as you get to know his music, you might find this too. I, it's very transparent. It's like, it's like, it feels, especially that piece of Festino, it feels like Beethoven a little bit, like not that I ever really played Beethoven, but People will know if you mess it up, even though they don't know, <laughs> because there's something about the way that it's presented that it's clear what's going on. I think, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure that's actually always so true about Fernio. Like, will someone know that you didn't, you know, play a certain rhythm correctly or uh, or there was like, a, a you know, a wrong note in a passage? I'm not actually. And then will, will the performer or the composer even know? <laughs> right. Well, actually, maybe they, I don't know. Maybe Brian would. I, I've never worked with him. Um, and I'm, I don't even necessarily mean that that's that as a criticism. I don't think that takes anything away from the music. I just think it it it's an interesting thing where sometimes score complexity doesn't necessarily line up with sort of performance demand and performance complexity. There's a point at which score complexity sometimes can actually uh, 
obscure and create more like of a haze around what's actually being heard and played. Uh, so in terms of like whether or not stuff will top out, I mean, I suspect that composers who have that conception of a lot of different things going on uh, are still going to veer towards complexity in some form or another, but might not look like what we're used to seeing when we see a new complexity score. Mm -hmm. uh, it might, I mean, we, you know, you've got all these scores coming out of Europe for like electric guitar with like very elaborate effects setups, right? That's like a different kind of complexity altogether. That's really about choreography. It's almost more like a percussion piece. Right. Uh, and sometimes the parts are also demanding, but sometimes they're not, you know, uh, or they're demanding in very idiosyncratic, quirky ways. And it's a totally different thing than something like Changes, which is just sort of like a ball buster piece, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I don't, yeah, it, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm trying to remember your question. Oh, but you asked also about like, uh, you should interrupt me at any time. Cause I could just like, keep sure. talking, obviously. Well, I guess I'm, it, you know, I was looking up the term progress because I think that a lot of people who do contemporary music in the background, they're sort of thinking like, Oh yeah, I'm doing something progressive. And like, you know, there's like almost like a sort of way that this is like politics where it's like, what is progressiveness? Like, um, you know, that's like kind of a slippery thing, but, uh, I, I basically um, I'm wondering what is progress in music because that's maybe yeah. like a bold thing to be pursuing as a composer. Yeah, right. um, but also like sort of in your repertoire, I'm curious if you feel like there's anything that gets a lot of bang for buck in terms of difficulty. I guess it's two questions, but uh, you know what like what is challenging and what do you feel like is more sort of like for the amount of challenge that goes into it has a good out outcome? Yeah. No, that's a great question. I mean, let me, I'm going to address the first part of your question first, like the thing about progress. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think about this a lot. Like, again, I guess I just think it's sort of a balance. Like sometimes I feel like, well, maybe we should all be a little less self-conscious about doing something we think represents progress and just mm -hmm. make the music that comes out of us and trust that as a sort of unique individual in this time period of time with the influences we've absorbed, it will either be progress or not, <laughs> or it will either be innovative or not, you know? Um, on the other hand, I think there's some, something really great to be said for that more conscious effort of like, well, let me really find something that is new and different here. Uh, so I, I think I tend to gravitate to, both kinds of things, but I, I, I do bristle a little bit again when I have to learn a piece that I feel like is only about the new thing that the composer identified. That's going to be, that's going to like distinguish him from everybody else. Mm -hmm. So I still feel like you still got to write a good piece. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and I don't necessarily feel like one new sound that somebody discovered or one new idea, like, run through all the possible permutations i don't know that that's necessarily going to still like i don't see why we'd have to in, in the service of progress throw out all these other components and parameters of music that have made it this enduring thing in mm -hmm. in in everybody's lives so uh i would say to your second question the stuff like 
that feels like it gives the best bang for my buck. I, I really think it's always still the pieces that still feel like they're also good pieces in they, they there's some, uh, in, in some sort of foundational way, there's some sense in which they hold together in both conservative and also progressive ways, if that makes any sense. Or conservative mm-hmm. is a loaded word. Conventional. I still want to hear structure. I still want to, you know, understand how a composer decided to organize his material and decided to tell a story. Even if the story is a six hour Morton Feldman piece, but there's like a very clear when Feldman's like having you sit through like all these different versions of this syntactical idea, right? Uh, mm-hmm. He's going to move things over by one sixteenth note this time. Then he's going to push it back by like a triplet. But there's a very strong sense of like the craft and the curation of the temporal experience there that I don't necessarily think always happens if like, okay, cool. We discovered that if you use uh, I don't know, a, an electric razor, <laughs> I don't know why I thought of that. That's actually, you know, that from the Romatelli, uh, mm-hmm. Oh, Fausto Romatelli has a great piece called trash TV trance uh, for electric guitar and effects. And there's a moment where you use an electric razor <laughs> or pickups and it goes, you know, and it's a very cool effect. But that's only one part, one part of the piece. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you could imagine somebody making the whole piece out of that. And it's just like almost like a science experiment. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not prepared to dismiss that. It, you know, someone would have to convince me, but I'm not as attracted to pieces like that. Uh, I think I'm a little bit more interested in stuff that integrates new ideas into mm-hmm. something that also has like some other uh, substantial parameters that we can latch onto, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And you mentioning science is interesting because I feel like um, one of the problems in science these days is that um, people are so incentivized to have results and like some of the best results are falsifying results, you know, that like, right. uh, you know, it's like it gave you high quality information, but you don't have a flashy thing to publish. And so like, I guess like, you know, if Morton Feldman's throwing out six hour pieces, even if they fail with some audiences, like it's like, well, we, we tried it and we learned from it. Uh, you know, so I guess experimental, like an experimental approach can be progressive if you aren't focused on having it be a six, like a success each time. Yeah. Yeah. Let me think about that. Yes, I definitely agree with that. And I I think part of what, I mean, I think, yeah, we're we're sort of stumbling on maybe an important thing, which is, and this sort of goes back to Babbitt in a way, and like his advocacy for composition as like a research uh, sort of topic or or something, you know, which obviously like has been amazing in, in a lot of ways for, the the art of composition in the United States that, that mm-hmm. the home for sort of avant-garde composition ought to be in a, in a research university. Right. Uh, but then what I think ends up happening is that the values of research end up getting imposed on art making in a way. Mm-hmm. Right. So this idea of, like you say, like publishing or publishing like unique new work. So you have to find something that is nobody's published before. Like you would with, you know, scientists isn't going to come along and do an experiment that there's already a paper for, mm-hmm. 
and be like, Hey, look at what I did, you know? Right. So that value can get exported to music, but it's like a little bit of an awkward fit in music because of course we have whole eras of music where people were doing the same thing as somebody else. Right. And in, in some senses, like in, in some capacities, very successfully, uh, like Mozart in a way, I guess, you know, you could see him as like a, a syner, synergist for like a, a, a codified Viennese classicism. Um, so like, uh, where am I going with this? Oh yeah. So I think then that, that sort of contributes to this idea of like, a, well, we have to unearth this like very unique thing. And then this is the idea. This is the thing I do. And it, it's, and then it feeds into this branding thing, you know, which obviously is like becomes important in our society mm-hmm. too, like in a capitalist context, like how do you distinguish yourself and how do you establish what your sort of commercial value is it's by having some kind of brand right mm-hmm. um so yeah i mean i i uh i find myself resisting all of that stuff like whenever i can and so i do still like to play like pretty pieces sometimes or things that aren't necessarily uh whatever like carving out absolute new territory i think it, there's definitely still a, a real value alongside those vanguard pieces which are amazing uh mm-hmm. if they're amazing <laughs> uh, um, also still oh go ahead right. sorry <laughs> um it, it, i guess uh you mentioned like aesthetic philosophy and uh you know sort of like the the recent developments in that i'm curious if you can recommend any reading or philosophers on the topic Oh, uh, putting me on the spot. I'm not sure anything. And you can always get back to me and I can write a sub stack about it. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll think about that. I mean, um, yeah, nothing coming to my mind at the moment. Um, but yeah, anyway, like also I think because the guitar has like a relative, uh, dearth of really strong, I mean, that's not fair to say we have a ton of amazing contemporary rep, but compared to other instruments like the piano or whatever, mm-hmm. or rep in general, uh, it seems to me that like there, it would be counterproductive to, to say, Oh, well, I'm only going to play. I mean, some players do this and I respect the choice, but to say like, well, I'm only going to play stuff. That's like the most hardcore experimental, uh, because everything else is sort of pointless. It's not as progressive. Well, I don't know. I mean, but, there's still a place for a piece that is a little bit more conventional uh, if it's really well-written or maybe somewhere in the middle of that continuum. Um, I guess I'm, I don't tend to be like that attracted to sort of very conservative, safe new music guitar pieces, you know, Mm -hmm. like where it's sort of uh, I guess essentially sort of neo-romantic. What if the piece is really great? I mean, I don't know. Why not? Right. Try not to be sort of too polemical about things, I guess, despite the fact that I'm running my mouth off. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, I mean, I guess one thing, you know, that we mentioned earlier is microtonality. And, uh, you know, it seems like that's an avenue for sort of progressiveness in some ways. Although I do get the sense that a lot of the microtonal people are kind of like a religious cult um, who are just like obsessed with coming up with like, a bunch of you know names for small little intervals that nobody can really perceive but yeah. um 
uh, you know, I know that you have a microtone guitar um, from our you know mutual friend Michael Gaderka. And yeah. um, I'd be curious to hear about how that's been going, what uh, fretboards you've been using, and um, how that would play into commissioning pieces. Like, yeah. um, if you are incentivized to commission for that or to not commission for that, because, you know, I sort of mentioned to you uh, in the email about, like, microtonal sunk costs. Yeah, and, like, I, I'm personally committed to 12 tones uh, just because it's been too long and I can't really <laughs> afford that many yeah. guitars. So. Sure, sure, sure. No, it's a great question. Uh, I think. I was probably first uh, attracted to, well, maybe from two ends. First attracted to microtonality, partly to sort of investigate the the early temperament thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I made a, a Bach album recently that's in in Kernberger three, uh, which is was like a a sort of parallel tuning to Werkmeister three, which was apparently Bach's preferred tuning. Um, and hearing that music in early tunings and hearing how different keys have different affects and, and it really actually illuminates things about structure, uh, that you don't get in, in, uh, 12 equal temperament. So that, that's been very cool. And then I guess on the other side, uh, probably first started to find my way into the stuff with quarter tone things, and then maybe discovering some of the West coast just intonation stuff. Um, but now in terms of the, the necks I've got for the microtone guitar, the one I'm doing the most with is the 19 equal division of the octave. Interesting. Okay. Uh, 19 is cool. I, I've heard some microtonal folks like Mike say, uh, 19 is sort of like a gateway tuning <laughs> to other more out tunings because 19 is basically all the enharmonic notes, but they're no, no longer equivalent. So G sharp and A flat are two different notes. Um, and so there is a sense that you can still be thinking in terms of the chromatic scale that we've all learned, but then make these sort of subtle uh, enharmonic adjustments that are no longer absolute, like in terms of pitch, they're no longer equivalent, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Uh, so it's cool. And my, my goal is to get better and better at actually like improvising on that neck neck. So like, you know, you could play a D seven flat nine, or you could play a, a D seven sharp octave, if that makes sense. Interesting. Okay. In other words, the, it could, the, 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 the knife could either be a D sharp or it could be an E flat and now they sound different. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that getting really inside that color and and figuring out a way to use it expressively and maybe i'll try to write some stuff for it too but but definitely commissioning is is a part of what i want to do with it and i've already gotten three pieces for the 19. i haven't had it that long so it's sort of a, a developing thing one by taylor brooke who's a really great composer does a lot of stuff with microtonal music especially just intonation but i think he was interested in the 19 system too uh, one by Christopher Bailey, who's also a really great composer doing a lot of stuff with microtonality. Uh, and the other by David Kroll, who's a really great New York-based composer who hadn't, I think, done as much stuff with microtonal music, but sort of took to it. Um, but you're right that there's a conundrum, and I've talked to some other composers who I'm working on new pieces with, and I suggested the 19, and they're like, well, I want to make sure somebody else might play the piece. Mm -hmm. And so it, yeah, it's like how much 
A, how much do you think players are going to get into the idea of alternate necks and alternate fretboards? And B, what, how much money are you going to put on 19 versus 31 or quarter tone neck or 17? You know, I get it from a, from, I mean, from my point of view, I'm not sure it's such a sunk cost because I get the piece and I can play it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think it's more of a sunk cost from the composer's point of view in a way. Right. Okay. Except to the extent that obviously you want a piece that you're, you're, partly involved in birthing to have as wide a life as it can. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I'm actually preparing, where's, here's the guitar. I'm preparing this piece that I recorded last year by uh, composer Chris Trapani. You know, Chris? No. Also a really great uh, composer who's been here a lot, but also splits his time in Italy. Um, and he does a lot of stuff in microtonal music. This is a quarter tone instrument. Interesting. Uh, and so it's for quarter tone guitar in scordatura. Sort of like a, a, a nice like C major seven with a F quarter sharp in there. Interesting. Yeah, okay. The eleventh partial, um, but not exactly. It's a little whatever. Um, and oh, the, the thing I was going to say is that he wrote this piece as part of like a sort of series of pieces that he wrote that he was thinking of for like unique instruments that he was intentionally writing them knowing that they probably weren't going to get played by that many people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think his thinking was, uh, well, twofold. I mean, on one hand, you write a lot of pieces and they only maybe get a premiere or a second performance anyway. And it's hard to get other people who aren't the commissioners to play them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, I think he was thinking like maybe with this sort of ubiquity of so much music, uh, that the thing to do is to create this sort of unique gem that has like a, a sort of this dialed in specificity to it, you know, and that, that is almost more valuable than trying to create this thing that sort of can be passed around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's been sort of like a cool process though. I would say maybe a quarter tone neck isn't as much of a unicorn as like a 19 edo neck mm-hmm. uh just the frets are too close or well no i was or i think maybe this one might actually become common i mean the frets are a little bit close <laughs> but in terms of utility quarter tones would be like more of the sort of lingo franca for like ensemble music i think at this point than any mm-hmm. other tuning and then, you know, by now it's like I think most new music players would see quarter tones and not really right. flinch for the most part, unless it was like a super complex passage. Um, so it seems to me that it, if there's any neck that's going to become more common in the next several years, 24 might be the best bet. But it's hard to say because also I could see the just intonation necks sort of. And John Schneider has been doing stuff with especially the just intonation next for years and the parch tunings and mm-hmm. he's like a real pioneer with all of this. Yeah. I mean, that weird, uh, national steel, uh, yeah. 11 limit yeah. thing. Whew. Yeah. Um, I guess that's, uh, is that the Harrison? I think tuning? so. Yeah. 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 That sounds amazing. Yeah, you it's get crazy. those like pure sevenths and it's just like, ah, it's awesome. Um, it's funny with 
just intonation, my way of sort of avoiding buying instruments is to just move it to the rhythmic domain. So like everything I do, I'm sort of thinking as just intonation, but like, you know, put into tempos and oh, that's cool. that cool. But um, yeah, that's, that's a neat application. That reminds me a little bit of um, Babbitt's time point system. Do you know about that? A little, but um, I, like, I always love to hear about Babbitt. So <laughs> yeah, it's like he's manifesting. I, I, I'm not an expert on this, and, and I, I have to reference Michael Keane, who's a really another really great composer who I've worked with a lot, who tried to help me understand it. I think I lost him somewhere along the line. But as I, uh, as I understand it. It's it. Babbitt is manifesting his uh, the lines and arrays of of his matrix, his his row matrix, uh, onto uh, sort of a rhythmic, sort of a, uh, an independent rhythmic matrix, I guess, basically, and organizing. I'm not sure he, at least in you know, composition for guitar, right? He mm -hmm. wrote for David Sterevin. Uh There's a there's one particular. Uh, passage in there that's like very clearly uh oriented around a time point system where he like manifested the row onto the onto the rhythmic durations interesting cool I'll yeah zoom in on it yeah um i, I guess uh thinking about the the davidovsky piece um i've been really interested in this idea of like a hyper instrument and yeah. um, i'm not sure if you're familiar like i've seen that you've done things with george lewis who you know his voyager system might sure. sort of be considered a hyper instrument yeah um I'm curious if there are other people in that realm that you're interested in, like sort of like you, I guess like uh, there was a quote in there from uh, Davidovsky about like reconciling the the musician with uh, technology. And um, I think that's kind of interesting. So like, is that uh, another avenue besides microtonality, like uh, sort of augmenting the instrument? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, uh, the prospect of using either fixed media or live electronics to sort of like create this bigger guitar or uh, Davidovsky would always call it like a big guitar or a hybrid guitar uh, is great. I mean, it, for one thing, again, if, if I'm thinking in terms of the sort of standard classical guitar experience, when I have done concerts and I'm adding that element, like I play the synchronisms, it's like just totally changes the sonic game. Mm -hmm. And it's great. And it's really, uh, in fact, in that particular piece, there's this, it depends on how you list it in the program. If you don't mention that it's synchronisms number 10 for guitar and electronic sounds, and somehow people don't necessarily realize it's an electronic piece, I guess this is all like a lot of ifs. It's an amazing moment after four and a half minutes when the electronics like creep in. Right. And like, you're like, what is going on? It's like all of a sudden the, the electronics are sustaining the, the instrumental sound and doing like addressing the weakness that the guitar can't really escape the, the quick decay. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so definitely for me, it's like a, I love playing stuff with electronics and I think, uh, it adds in a solo recital, it adds a, like an amazing element. And in the context of more like sort of mixed chamber music concerts doing electronics, I think always, I think it helps to put guitar more on an equal footing in a way with other instruments. Mm -hmm. um, you you almost will always amplify the instrument if you're playing with electronics. So then you're sort of bringing it up to a certain kind of like sonic experience that, that puts it on par. Um, I've done plenty of stuff with both live and live electronics and fixed media. Fixed media for me feels more like I'm learning a, a chamber piece, I guess, in a way. 
you know, you're really learning the tape part. You're, you're trying to respond to it. And then even though the tape part is fixed because you're a different person, every time you play it, it will feel like the tape part is animated in a way. Interesting. You know, sometimes it'll feel like the tape part is dragging. If you're really amped up, sometimes it'll feel like it's rushing, you know, uh, because you're all every situation is different every hall is different uh you're maybe you didn't have as much caffeine that day or whatever you know mm -hmm. so there's a dynamic relationship that happens the dynamic relationship that happens with live electronics is also really cool but it tends to be more one way right it's really just mostly the the uh live electronics like processing something that you did that you initiated though i guess i've done pieces where uh the patch was designed in a way that was a little bit more like it created some kind of feedback loop with, with what I was doing. Hmm. Uh, trying to think, well, there's this Dai Fujikura piece that I, that I uh, recorded and premiered sparking orbit. Do you know Dai's music? No, I think like, I saw that come up after like searching around for you. I saw that recommended yeah. to me. <laughs> so that, that piece is it's electric guitar and electronics. And it was originally written for the SWR Electronic Music Studio in Freiburg, Germany, okay. which was like Nono, Luigi Nono's baby. He sort of built that and it's based on his philosophy about electronics, which is very, again, I'm not an expert on this, so I'm gonna just hopefully not get this wrong, but it's, it's about analog equipment and about like very much, the electronics musicians are, are live performers. Mm -hmm. You know, they're there with a console and, and working faders and, uh, manipulating these conduction reverbs and stuff like that. And that was a very cool experience because the piece has this big long section at the end of it where these delays and conduction reverbs are sort of flying around the room and I have to keep on feeding them material. Otherwise, if I stop playing, the whole thing sort of grinds to a stop, right? Huh. Uh, and I did an interesting thing and the piece starts in a very sort of responsorial way. I play a phrase, then you hear the electronics tail afterwards, but by the end I'm playing the whole time and the electronics sort of take on a life of their own. And I'm actually a prisoner to them <laughs> instead of like the one who's leading. I'm actually, I can't stop playing. <laughs> I stop the piece stops. Right. Uh, so it's a pretty cool thing, but then we ended up because we couldn't fly those guys around the world <laughs> every time we wanted to play the piece he did a capture of their audio. And so I now play that piece as a fixed media piece. Interesting. And I don't need to play that part the whole time. And so he wrote additional material like that I play over the top of it, sort of like rock oriented soloistic material. So the piece is sort of like taken on a different life that really revolves around the different types of performance uh, requirements of fixed media versus electronic versus live electronics. Interesting. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, in a more general sense, I, I do think that's a really great arena, uh, especially when, I mean, Davidovsky is such a great model because he was always very uh, adamant about, he didn't want the technology to sort of step out in front of the performer or the sort of craft of still writing like a, a sort of cohesive, uh, compelling piece mm -hmm. uh so that's partly why he always wrote electric acoustic stuff and he didn't write purely electronic music and at the end of his life he pretty much stopped writing electronic music and 
because he felt like he had learned a lot from writing electronics and now performers were able to do a lot of what he wanted to do. Interesting. So, so the piece Festino that I mentioned has a sort of electronic music quality to it, but it's all acoustic. Uh, it's like he took some of those analogs that he discovered in writing electronic music and he figured out a way to write them for, for a quartet of acoustic instruments. It's pretty wild. Interesting. That's very cool. Um, yeah. I, I'm realizing that we're up at like an hour-ish. Uh, are you okay with going a little bit longer? Yeah, yeah, totally fine. Cool. Yeah. Um, um, but anyway, like the reason I, I mentioned him because I think for me, like he, synchronisms, the synchronism series really framed my understanding of a sort of ideal of electroacoustic playing. And I think it's always most successful when there's some kind of dialogue going on between like the performer on stage and the electronics, even if, even if the electronics are fixed, I think if it's written in a, in a sort of very thoughtful way, that dialogue is there. John Link also wrote me a, a guitar and electronics piece called Like Minds. Interesting. I'll have to so, check it out. Yeah. It's on one of my records. Um, and that's a really cool piece that sort of tweaks the idea. Like it really obscures. So it's all recordings of me playing and it still sounds like a guitar most of the time. And then there's a few moments where you're like, wait, it's doing something that's not really possible on one guitar. And, but there's a lot of the piece where you really don't know who's playing what. Uh, and so, yeah, it's like a pun in a way, like my, like we're like minds, of course, cause it's me playing on the recording and I'm playing with myself. Uh, but also, well, I don't know, maybe he was thinking we have like, I'm not sure exactly. There's a lot of levels to the punnery. But. Interesting. I, I feel like uh, I didn't get this uh, this insider sense of John when I talked to him, uh, like in terms of his humor or his sort of like you know putting puns. Oh on yeah, there. yeah. But he's very he's it's very dry, very midwestern, uh, <laughs> dry dry midwestern humor. That's that's John. Um, I, I'd be curious to talk a little bit about um sort of like nitty gritty uh you know performance stuff um because you know like when I looked at your website there's a list of your rep repertoire it's on a spreadsheet that's like four pages and so like oh. for me i'm just like holy shit that's that's a lot of material and i'm curious how you digest all of that and assimilate it or like what your sort of strategy is for preparing it because i assume it's not just go to the practice room and come out of the practice room when you're done like <laughs> uh i don't yeah i don't know i i wish i could say that i have a sort of really methodical uh approach to I think a lot of times I'm just sort of like, well, okay, what's, what's the next thing right in front of my face and what do I have to do to get, to get something learned? But obviously uh, solo repertoire has like a, different kinds of demands than chamber stuff. Uh, one is not necessarily like easier or less demanding than another, but since a lot of what I do is chamber music, I'm often really approaching it from the point of view of like, okay, <clears throat> you know, what can I anticipate is going to happen at what point in the piece and what do I need to be doing at that, at that moment? And, and how can I sort of understand how my part fits into the whole, uh, and it tends to be a little less sort of driven by the sort of just mechanics of, of playing the instrument that you would have to grapple with more in a solo piece and really build up your tempi and, you know, solve technical problems and whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, 
ideally with solo rep, I, I try to get it. So like once I've learned it, uh, I can touch on it every once in a while, circle back to it. So there's a sort of maintenance thing that's going on. Um, and then if I have a chance to play it again, then, then it's still sort of in my fingers, but honestly, a lot of pieces have probably fallen out and I would have to sort of regurgitate them, mm-hmm. <laughs> in a way, you know, yeah. um, have you ever like, uh, I guess like dealt with injuries or anything or like over, over training type of problems. Um, I, I feel yeah. like, you know, for me having a Les Paul, it's just such a wildly heavy guitar and yeah, it's a heavy guitar. I, I'm playing like a, an ergonomic guitar that is like a fraction of the weight now. And it's great, but, um, still it's just like the impact on my shoulder over years of playing a Les Paul. It's like, damn. Uh, and so yeah. I don't or know you, if you've ever you were, had you were standing and playing with a strap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I, I don't actually, every once in a while I'll do a gig with a strap on electric but mostly i sit down because mm-hmm. like a lot of, for the pedaling i feel like uh it's one thing if you're standing and you're playing like a rock gig where you turn on distortion for a lead moment mm-hmm. it's another thing if you're playing a new music piece where they want you to like do a pedal change every four beats or three beats. right um and i feel like in that context you're just gonna fall <laughs> if you're not seated uh but yeah, I had, I mean, I had some overuse when I was like a college student uh, in my left hand. And I, I honestly, now I think I don't typically get enough practice time to really get into the red. Mm-hmm. Maybe every once in a while, if I'm like preparing a big solo program, I might. The, the problem I have more is like lugging my gear around the city. Yeah. <laughs> I even just two nights ago I had like two guitars and a heavy bag with pedals and like a little lunchbox amp in there. And I was just like, at least I, this time I recognize, cause I've had situations where I'll do that. And then I'm, I wake up the next morning, I can't turn my neck, you know, mm-hmm. so I came back and made sure to like really stretch my neck out and stuff. But yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's definitely a physical thing. As you know, it's, we don't do this like in some kind of weird cryogenic you know, it's still our bodies and you have to sort of be cognizant of that. Um, but knock on wood, I haven't really struggled with that stuff too much in the last several years. I suppose another part of my problem here is that like a lot of what I was doing was like sort of Ben Monder style, you know, like super stretches and it's probably, probably not the best thing to do all the time, but, um, yeah, uh, I mean, that's that's I'd love to hear that sometime. Ben Monder's amazing. I, I love his playing. Um, yeah, I think there are ways that you can sort of probably like warm up your hand for big stretches like that. Like I do mm-hmm. an exercise. One of the first exercises I do when I pick up the instrument is just fifths. I'm basically doing it on a quarter tone guitar. So. this type of exercise there's like stacked fifths yeah and i just go down the neck to try to expand it and i feel like just doing that like a minute not even a minute my my left hand feels like more open uh but i know that like some of those really juicy voicings especially if you're like sort of doing closely spaced seconds and stuff like that Mm -hmm. uh yeah you're asking a lot of your hand you know (laughs) uh there's not really any way around it excuse me um i i don't know if you've been following the sort of like chess drama lately 
Yeah, I, I noticed you said that in the email. I was like, I, I don't know anything about what he's talking about. <laughs> well, um, I mean, basically, like, uh, you know, there was like this championship game and um, the current grandmaster or whatever, like the current champion of the world accused the his opponent of cheating. And everybody's trying to figure out how he would have cheated. Um, yeah. And so, like, I guess the way that people do that is they bring like a little transmitter in in their shoe and somebody externally runs like an AI and will give them the answers. But yeah. um, right. I guess like I, I've sort of been intrigued by this idea of like an ELO score in chess, um, which I guess is also in sports. And, you know, because music isn't a sport, we don't really like seem to engage with it this way where it's like, here are my stats on like my you know, uh, performance accuracy or something like that. Um, like you can't really cheat at music because it's, it's an art. Um, but I mean, yeah. I guess I'm curious, um, like, you know, how you would assess the capabilities of, uh, contemporary musicians who are like, I, I spoke with Lewis Nielsen and he mentioned that he saw this like performance of, uh, Abula's piece and he was just like, they were not getting it right. And, knowing how complex some of this stuff is, there has to be a lot that's not being played correctly, right? Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, this is, yeah, and I think it changes over time. Like, and it's not necessarily fair. So, uh, for instance, I'm putting, so I run New Focus Recordings, right? And we're putting out a record of Babbitt uh, songs for high voice and piano. And a lot of that music is, was recorded back in Babbitt's time and they're they're great iconic recordings, but if you really look at the score, you're like, okay, yeah, these aren't maybe like as fidelity isn't quite there, and, mm -hmm. uh, or even sort of to the next level. As I'm working, I've been working with this uh, violinist who does a lot of recording, Eric Carlson, who's out at uh, UCSD, okay. and he has a series of Babbitt recordings that he's doing that are extremely heavily edited. So basically, his process is to record rest to rest. And Whoa. then you just record everything in between a rest and, and then you try to like really get the, all the dynamics and articulations exactly right. Which in Babbitt is like in the context of a performance, I mean, it's a striver thing. I mean, you do your best, but there's definitely a lot of markings in that music that are extremely hard to really get like a fortissimo followed by a pianissimo with a pits on the, you know, whatever. Uh, but in this context, you know, Eric is able to get deliver these recordings that are almost sound like computer music. Uh, and so the question then becomes like, is that cheating? Mm -hmm. uh, or maybe if it is cheating, is that bad? I mean, we're, mm -hmm. we're getting a chance to hear what Babbitt conceived in his mind, even if it's not actually possible to really play it like that in real life but it would shape interpreters uh sort of ideal of what they were going for and all of a sudden you might hear things in the music that you wouldn't have heard before because of this sort of like micro editing process um so where was i going with this oh you were saying like nielsen had that experience with the spoolez performance i mean i think probably as time goes by, like scores that strike people as like super impossible and unrealistic over time, people develop a performance. But same happened with Tchaikovsky violin concerto, mm -hmm. right? Or Strauss, uh, though the story with Strauss apparently is that like at some point people were playing Don Juan too cleanly and he was upset. 
Like, <laughs> the whole point was that it was sort of like this big bravura gesture. And, and then all of a sudden it sounded like everybody was nailing it. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, uh, It's definitely an interesting question and because I do a lot of recording. I feel like I do run up against this feeling of like both in myself, like auditing myself, uh, what is the appropriate line for making something definitive in the studio? Uh, and at what point does it become sort of almost weirdly unethical if you're creating a recording that isn't even possible to play? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's probably my, I mean, I, I have no qualms about doing plenty of, I, to me, it seems like a different art form. You know, it's like sculpting versus right. theater, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I also don't really believe that it's possible to make a great recording of something you can't actually play. Uh, like it is if it's electronic music, but there, there you have to, I don't know, you have to bring that sense of like, what your interpretation is and what it is to play that piece to the process of recording it in order to make it like a really compelling recording of an acoustic piece of music, I think. Yeah. Um, but I don't see anything wrong with starting, you know, right before a hard passage or editing it. I mean, I, I think almost everybody does this now. Uh, so yeah, to me, that doesn't seem like uh, cheating mm -hmm. <laughs> to use the, go back to the, the chess thing. Um, but I guess, yeah, then the question is like, what is, you know, I mean, it, we have this different goal, like you said, where it's not, it's not a sport. Uh, and so if you can, if you can marshal the resources of the technology to produce something that really grabs people, uh, or is like a very sort of powerful sound recording, then I think, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that's really what you're asking or not. But. I don't know if it was a, a an actual question. I guess it was just sort of that I've been inspired by hearing about um, the yeah. level of you know uh, I guess like specificity and like evaluating people's scores and um, you know yeah. you can come up with these interesting pairings of like oh this will actually be a really good game and like I feel like for a certain person like for me back in the day looking at Shard it was just like that wasn't a good game. Uh, it, you know, I wasn't ready for it. And so it would be interesting if there was like a, a quantitative sort of approach in music that would allow for this. But um, I mean, I, then again, with the Babbitt thing on violin, it's like, I'm sure that that has plenty of, you know, audible sweat in it, if you will. Like it's not a, an easy procedure to record those passages, I'm sure. Oh, no. I mean, I did, I did now, I guess, three pieces with guitar. The, the composition for guitar and the duo uh and no it was not easy like it because you get further and further or closer and closer to these very detailed passages and you sort of hear all this discrepancies or oh that that wasn't really a mezzo forte that was more like a mezzo piano and then you sort of have to um so yeah i mean everything has its virtuosity in a way mm -hmm. even even when you play like Vondelweiser music and it's like you're sitting there for three hours playing the same note over and over again you sort of zoom in and it's like okay the delicacy of exactly the timbre of that note uh so yeah I don't know 
but in terms in terms of like yeah, what's actually getting played out there and like you know in performances absolutely there's a whole range of stuff that will be unbelievably faithful to the score you hear performances sometimes of pieces that you don't really think are even possible to play live and you're like wow that was just phenomenal to like stuff that is definitely more sort of gestalted or whatever and phoned in mm-hmm. um and sometimes can still be compelling in some way as performance, but maybe is not definitive, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's, I mean, it gets, in a way it gets back to what you were talking about, about like, does, does this stuff top out mm-hmm. complexity? And uh, I, I guess I feel at least for me, when I get up to play a piece, I, I can't, really be thinking of it like it's like a gymnastics routine Mm -hmm. you know am i gonna like if if everything is basically hinging on whether or not you're gonna like land the triple flip or like skating or skating routine or whatever then there's i think there's something wrong then like there's i mean obviously you want to land the triple flip (laughs) or the triple sow cow you know but like there should be some kind of uh infrastructure or skeleton to the performance and the interpretation that makes it so that the audience will still get the point of the piece mm-hmm. even if you don't land that that move you know um it, i guess this makes me also th- realize that like there isn't really like an endurance sort of focused aesthetic in music like um and that reminds me that ben monder has attempted multiple times to practice for 24 hours and um he's always i guess like you know failed at about 20 hours but it's kind of funny thing to do um the the last thing it's not true that there isn't an endurance i mean there are pieces that are about uh well i mean the the feldman stuff is about sort of mental endurance right and and physical in a way you gotta sit there and i mean i've asked people how do you like not go to the bathroom it's six hours is a long time place yeah uh but then there's there's a piece um by Drew Baker, piano piece. I'm forgetting the name. It's on New Focus. Uh, stress stress position, I think hmm. it's called. And it's like a 15 minute piece of just like constant sort of forte, like super widely spaced block chords. And literally, the pianist, like by the end, like they're they're searing. Their hands are, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, it's a political statement. It was about, I think. Uh, that was what it was called, stress position. There's like a torture. He wrote it during the Bush administration. There's a torture mm-hmm. technique uh, that is called that. It's basically, yeah, stress position. That's Interesting. So, I, yeah, I think there are, I mean, I feel like I've also played some pieces, minimalist stuff, maybe. Michael Gordon, I feel like, has some music that's like pretty brutally for a long time you know you mm-hmm. really have to sort of, it's i guess well it's like a little like playing metal you have to sort of if you were just sort of having to do like like for like an hour yeah. that's I gonna, guess, hurt. It's, gonna it's funny thinking about metals like relationship with the downstroke is kind of i feel like almost like the flamenco thumb thing you know oh, it's yeah. like this weirdly flexed muscle yeah, um point yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess the the last thing I'll sort of ask about is um, basically like the challenges of writing for guitar. And as somebody who commissions a lot of guitar music, um, you know, are you looking for non-guitarists specifically because it 
it has that weird sort of uh, element of the person finding new ways to relate yeah. to it. Or um, yeah, yeah. also, how does the electric guitar fit into this? And yeah. you know, um, that sort of like development of new repertoire. Yeah. No, it's a great question. I I think I have uh, pretty often gravitated towards non-guitarist composers for exactly the reason you say. I think the the logic of the instrument tends to exert a certain influence on uh, what uh, someone might come up with. And so if, if somebody's, you know, like an experienced guitarist, uh, that might end up shaping. On the other hand, I, I feel like I've been lucky also to work with a lot of composers or, or, or people who for whom they have a background playing guitar, but composition became their primary artistic practice. Mm -hmm. uh, and they've also what's that like a jeffrey yeah. holmes or something right jeffrey holmes is a great example van stiefel is another uh great example douglas boyce all these guys play or have played at some point and they know the instrument pretty well uh Vinit shende is another one um and so they're doing things that like it's really pretty unlikely that a non-guitarist who hasn't written for the instrument would stumble upon um so i yeah i think uh maybe that's like the the wheelhouse i like to operate in non-guitarist composers who are willing to be adventurous uh and and i try to sort of work with them and say well okay let's try to like if we mess with this voicing we it's more practical or whatever uh and also composers who have some facility on the guitar but are still trying to do some interesting stuff mm -hmm. yeah um in terms of how the electric figures into that uh I usually just give people the option. I mean, or or sometimes it, like a commission develops out of a conversation already. So we have some idea of what we want to do. Um, I do think that electric guitar really does fit really well into a lot of instrumental combinations for chamber music in a way that nylon string guitar is, is more of a challenge. Mm -hmm. That said, I sort of, I do try to encourage a lot of people to still try to integrate nylon string guitar into chamber music, just because I think when it works, it's really fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm definitely finding a lot of chamber music stuff ends up, is, is going in the, in the nylon direction, or sorry, in the electric direction. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've, I've had some new electric pieces written for me uh, that have been, that have been really gratifying. My, I guess my interest there, I think, veers towards approaching the electric guitar as a sort of augmented instrument to, to still play with a classical technique in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it, it does some really interesting things sustain-wise, and, uh, and that's a sort of a cool arena to explore. But obviously there's some amazing music being written it's approaching it really from the whole other side of a sort of sound sculpting type of thing, you know. Mm -hmm. Do you um do you have any uh, issues with nails on electric? Yes. <laughs> do you have any solutions for those issues? I, issues. I don't really have solutions. Uh, I mean, I think when I'm like present and aware enough about it, and I have to play a piece with my nails on electric, I just try to push the gain up enough that I'm not really digging in so much. 
Gotcha. Interesting. So I'm, I'm not shredding my nails and I'm getting, I'm getting dynamics more like from a very, a sort of sensitivity of touch, but I, yeah, I've had definitely had situations where whatever you get sort of carried away and then all of a sudden you have to like go grab nylon string and play it later in the program. And you look mm -hmm. at your M nail, it's like, Oh no. <laughs> so Excuse me. it's always the nylon it suffers because it's so much more fraught and delicate i think in right. terms of that yeah, yeah I, I feel like uh it's hard to manage the two and i'm a predominantly yeah. electric player but um you know it, it's whatever i try to dive back into nylon then it's like sh oh, shit yeah i mean i i really like fought against i struggled with this a lot for years and it just like stressed me out because i do end up doing a decent number of concerts where i'm switching back and forth uh and i think at some point i something i think i might have just let go of the idea that in that context the the nylon sound was going to be my ideal like nylon classical guitar sound and and i relaxed more <laughs> uh, I, there's probably got to be another solution for it but uh, you know you could use like nail strengthener or whatever mm -hmm. so things are a little, a little less likely to get worn down yeah, I've seen people get acrylics, but that, I mean, just like that seems absurd. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've tried that. Like if I break a nail really close to a performance, then I have to either do like the ping pong ball solution or acrylics. But then I feel like I'm aware of this foreign thing on my finger the whole time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Is it going to fall off? Is it going to like make a weird tone? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Not great. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm... Um... I guess that's everything that was on my list to talk about. Do you have anything you want to mention before we sign off? Um, oh, it was great. Great to talk to you. And yeah. Likewise. On the, on the podcast. It's, it's yeah. very cool. And so, if, uh, I mean, for listeners, of course, check out uh, New Focus Recordings. And uh, Dan has a bunch of performances on YouTube that are all pretty excellent. Um, so, yeah. Uh, thanks for joining me, Dan. This has been a fun conversation. Thanks, John. Hope to meet you in person at some point. Sounds good. I'll talk to you later.